Thanks so much for joining us for this message from The Bridge Church. Our mission is to be a church that exists for Christ, for community, and for the city. We believe Jesus has called us to make an impact in our culture for the next generation, for diversity, for healthy families, and for church planning. Today's sermon is from the series Messy Life from the book of 1 Corinthians. If this message inspires you to love Jesus and follow him more, send us an email at stories at thebridgeilm.com. Hey, good morning, everybody. Hey, happy Valentine's Day to you. Um, Or as was pointed out to me this morning, Singles Awareness Day, (laughs) which the acronym there spells SAD, so, you know, sorry about that. Um, Hey, but if you are here today and you're single, Jesus was single too, you know, and he, he did okay. So I think you'll be, I think you'll be all right. Um, well, um, just out of curiosity, Valentine's Day, how many, people, uh, how many people in the room are in love right now? How many people in the room are in love? Okay, all right, raise it high and raise it proud. Um, and the reason, the reason that I like to do that is because it always makes uh, the dating couples feel a little odd, you know, because <laughs> you're like, we're not at the I love you stage yet. And I'm looking to see whether or not they raise their hand. So what do you, some, you know, if I put you in a tough spot, you know, I'm sorry about that. Maybe you need to have a DTR, you know, this afternoon on the way, on the way home. Um, well, my name is Ethan. I'm one of the pastors uh, here. Thank you so much for, for being here and for joining us. If you've got a Bible, I want you to go ahead and grab it and to open it to this letter of 1 Corinthians, which is in the New Testament. Uh, New Testament, it's uh, right after uh, the letter of Romans. And so uh, the letter of 1 Corinthians is where we're going to be. If you don't have a Bible, if you don't own a Bible, that's, that's okay. Uh, we'll put the verses on the screen uh, for you. And as well, if you don't own a copy of the Bible, I say this every week, you can grab one for free on your way out at the resource area. We have several... Have lots of copies of Bibles. would love to be able to give you one today for free if you don't actually uh, own a Bible. I wanted to point this out before, um, before I jump in too far today. Um, as a church, we feel very, very strongly about existing not for the, our own good, but existing for the good of our city. So in our mission, part of our mission is to be a church that exists for the city, which is part of our mission. And uh, one of the ways that we do that is through a, a school that is, uh, that is right behind us. That's one of our neighbors, uh, Snipes Academy. Um, which is an elementary school. It's a public school that's here. It's um, uh, actually, it's um, one of the uh, lowest performing schools in all of New Hanover County. The entire school's 100% free and reduced lunch, and they don't have a PTA, and so we've told them, uh, we'll be your PTA. And so for the last couple of years, we've literally uh, tried to been, been help out and, and, and do things whatever we can. Lots of volunteers are over there all week long. Um, I got a, a card from uh, the principal um, this this week, and I thought it would be good if I read it to you. And uh, she she wrote this, and she says, uh, "Your dedication to our efforts at Snipes Academy amaze me. We are most grateful for your financial donation to our school. Um, thank you for including us during your prayerful time over Christmas, which she means Christmas for the city there. And because of your generosity, we're able to just write them a, a, a fat check. And she says, your donation along with your presence in our school enables us to focus on the goals we have for our students and our staff. Is that not cool? Can we celebrate that and thank God for, um, thank God for that? Um, that's um, that's really, really cool, you know? And that's why we do what we do, you know? And it's not very often that a pastor 
gets a card from a public school principal, you know. <laughs> so that's just a miracle in itself. And so um, we just wanted to, to share that share that with you. Um, let me let me mention a few words to you here at the beginning. I want to see. I'm curious how you would respond to these words. Okay, so I'm going to have a string of words that I'm just going to mention, and. No, none of them are graphic in nature, but a string of words, and I'm just curious kind of how you would respond. So think about these words as as I read them aloud. Here we go. Here's the first one. Obey. Submit. Yield. Surrender. Serve. Obligation. Sacrifice. Suffer. And weakness. What's interesting is to me is that for most of us, these words, they make us cringe inside. I said the word obey and you're like, oh no. Like they're not even expletive words, you know, and they make us cringe. I mean, you hear somebody near you or on a movie or something drop the F-bomb and it's like no big deal, but you hear these words and it's like, did he just say the word submit? Oh my, I think, I, think I'm going, I think I'm going to die. What's interesting about all of these words that I just read to you is that every single one of them uh, is anti-American, but pro-Christian. All right, you get that? Anti-American, but pro-Christian. They're, they're anti-21st century American culture, meaning you can't make it long in our culture and love these words. But at the same time, you can't make it long as a Christian without loving these words. Because every single one of them is absolutely essential to living the Jesus way of life. That's what I love so much about Jesus. That he was just so revolutionary in the things that he said. He was just absolutely mind-boggling to the average person that he met because what he said was just so revolutionary. And he preached truths that were counter-cultural. It was as if they were from a different world. But the more people followed him, the more they began to understand that there really is a different world out there, or you could say it as he said it, a different kind of kingdom. And we're in the middle of a series here at the bridge called uh, Messy Life, and one of the reasons that our lives are so messy is because of these words, because we don't like these words. There's nothing in our being as 21st century Americans that actually loves these words, but in Jesus' mind, they are absolutely essential for living the kind of life that's really worth living. And one of the things that we're experiencing in 1 Corinthians is that these new believers who lived in the city of Corinth, they still hadn't figured out the Jesus way of life. So they were Christians, they had uh, entered the church, they had become a part of the church, but they still hadn't really understood the Jesus way of living. You know what, you know what I mean by that? So that, that's true, true of all of us. Um, we become Christians, but it takes, us, it takes a while to really understand kind of the Jesus way of life. And so we come into church and we bring our own baggage, we bring our own ideas of how we think that our life should be, and that was exactly true of what was happening here with these Corinthians. Now, these Corinthians, they were super fly. You know, They were educated, and they were cool, and they were progressive, and they were hip, and they just thought that they were so talented, and they were so successful. They had a hard time following a lifestyle that would actually shatter their dreams. So in their minds, to suffer, or to sacrifice, or to submit, or to be weak, were painful ideas that they wanted no part of. I mean, their life, their dream, their goal was to make it to the top. They wanted to rule. They wanted to 
lead. They wanted to be in control. They wanted to be in charge. They wanted to reign. They wanted to achieve the Corinthian dream, so to speak, was the bent of their life. And what's interesting is that is true of all of us, too. Some people are like, the Bible is so primitive. You know, it was written thousands of years ago. It doesn't apply to our... That is exactly uh, the the state of, of, of our culture. I mean, that's true of every single one of us. We don't want to submit. We want to be in charge. We don't want to follow. We want to lead. We don't want to be weak. We want to have power. Now, I don't know if you've um, thought about it this way, but um, interesting. I want, to, I want to see this as a show of hands. How many of you in the room today have ever been to uh, a leadership conference of some form, vocationally or personally? You've been to a leadership conference where you learn great truths and nuggets and you know things about how to be a better leader and all those kinds of things all right now so that was almost every single person now i'm just out of out of curiosity how many of you have been to a conference on following a followership conference so to speak anyone ever been to a conference on learning how to submit on how to serve i mean like so what do you find that interesting Everybody wants to be a leader. Everybody wants to be in charge. Everybody wants to be in control. And I, I love those conferences. Like, I benefit from them. I've been to dozens of them. But nobody, there's not a, you can't hardly find a conference on learning how to follow well. Why is that? Why is that? That's because we all want to be in control. We all want to be in charge. We don't want to receive orders. We want to give orders. Everybody wants to be the chief and nobody wants to be the Indian. And what Paul is going to show us through these first century Corinthians, is that our desire to be in charge and to be in control and to lead and to have the things that we want to do and to be first and to make it to the top really only makes our lives more messy and more broken. So how many times, just out of curiosity, did you lose a job or change jobs or have work conflict because you couldn't get along with your boss or your supervisor? That's never happened to anybody, you know? That's never happened. How many times have you made a bad financial decision because you wouldn't submit to a budget or a healthy financial practice? Any spenders in the room with me on this one? How many times have you damaged a relationship because uh, you wanted to do things your own way and wouldn't compromise your point of view? How many times has your family had drama because someone who wouldn't sacrifice for the good of the family? How many times has a relationship with someone that you've had uh, that you were close to just fall apart because one person wouldn't give up control? See, at the end of the day, what we're going to see in this passage is that Paul really wants his readers and us to analyze what it is we're actually living for. All of us have a dream that we're living for, and these Corinthians, we're following the Corinthian dream. The serious thing about each of us is we're probably more than we even recognize following the American dream. Now, as a caveat, I love the American dream. I love that you can come to America, and you can have opportunities, and you can have the ability uh, to uh, make something out of your life, to succeed, to get a job, to start a business. I absolutely love that about America, so don't hear this as like Ethan's bashing America. I love America. I love America, but when you become a Christian, Jesus gives you a new dream for your life, and a dream that is often at odds with the American dream, okay? So 1 Corinthians chapter 4, and some of you want to crucify me. That's okay. 1 Corinthians 4, 
verse 1. That's why you pay me to do this. It says this in verse 1. Paul says, this is how one should regard us, meaning the apostles, leadership, pastors, as servants of Christ and stewards of the mysteries of God. I wonder how many leadership conferences they used to go to. Verse 2, moreover, it is required of stewards that they be found faithful. Everybody say, faithful. But with me, it is a very small thing that I should be judged by you or by any human court. In fact, I do not even judge myself, for I'm not aware of anything against myself, but I am not thereby acquitted. It is the Lord who judges me. Therefore, do not pronounce judgment before the time, before the Lord comes, who will bring to light the things now hidden in darkness and will disclose the purposes of the heart. Then each one will receive his commendation from God." Okay, so let me clue you in on a little drama that's happening between Paul and these Corinthians, this church. These Corinthians didn't like their pastor. And some of you are like, no, I can't imagine a scenario in the world where someone wouldn't like their pastor. You mean that happens? It happens. And they didn't like Paul. They didn't like the things that he would, he would say. There was a lot of animosity that was happening between Paul and the, these Christians. Now, why, why was there animosity? Is because Paul's like JV pastor? No, he wrote books of the Bible. I mean, I mean no, he, he was like the, the, the greatest church planner that's ever lived. Why didn't they... Why didn't they get along with Paul? Because they didn't like to follow. Because they didn't like to submit. You know, even that word just makes you want to throw up in your mouth right there. I mean, they just didn't, they just didn't like to do that. They, they didn't like to submit to Paul and his leaderships. They didn't like his sermons. They didn't like the stuff that he was talking about, which is just a bad recipe. If you don't like the pastor and you think his sermons suck, that's just a bad place to, to go to church. And they just, they just, there was nothing that they liked about Paul because Paul wouldn't feed them what he, they wanted them to, to feed him. See, they wanted Paul to preach leadership sermons on how they could make their life better. Oh, now. Oh, now. They, they wanted him to tell them how they could live their best life now. They wanted practical principles to help them achieve their financial goals. And some of you are wondering, I thought that's why I'm here. I thought that's what church is supposed to be. No, this isn't a leadership conference, you know, where I, you come in and I make you feel good and tell you about how you can achieve all your life's dreams. That, that, that's not the goal. The goal isn't about necessarily your potential, but it's about the potential that you have in Christ, you know? So you're supposed to come to church. I'm not supposed to tell you how awesome you are. I'm supposed to tell you how awesome Jesus is, you know? And then when you find him, he changes your life and he, he does what you never could, you know? But these Corinthian Christians, they didn't like that kind of preaching. They didn't like that. They wanted, to, they wanted to hear about, you know, how they were awesome, how they were like Jesus' little snowflake, you know? Two sermons in a row. Made it in there. Two sermons in a row. This is, this, is, this is church, and church is about telling you about Jesus and then how we fit into his plan and his dream and his agenda for our lives. So Paul, he starts off here at the beginning in these verses, and he gives them a metaphor, which he does all the time. He gives them a metaphor, and he says that the church, the church is like a house. It's like a, a house. It's like the house of God. Now, interestingly enough, in Greco-Roman culture, uh, many homes or households often had uh, servants that would be in, in the house. So um, uh, uh, the master of the house, the head of the household, he would hire servants, and they helped with the chores and with uh, cleaning and different things. They helped with the children, and a servant was there to um, help out and to serve the agenda of the master. They were employed by the master, the head of the household, and had to report to him. And Paul says that he's like a servant, 
in the house of God. He's not the master. God is. He's not the head honcho, but he's been commissioned by his master to be a good servant and a good steward in God's house. You see, what these Corinthians thought was that Paul was responsible to serve the agenda of the church members rather than serve the agenda of God. This is getting heavy. They were critics of Paul because they had achieved a certain level of power and influence in the church, and so they wanted to trump God's design for how the house of God is supposed to operate. He's getting a little, he's getting a little harsh. Here's the first thing I think this teaches us. Here's the first thing. Pastors serve Christ, not committees, critics, or cash. That's a good place to say amen, right? I know, I know some of you don't like that. I know you don't like that. I know that's not intuitive for us, but that, that absolutely is core to everything about what, 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 a, what a church is. Now, um, <laughs> I'll go on to say, here, here's, here's the cold, cold, hard truth. Every pastor is going to serve something. Every pastor is going to have something be its his master. And what inevitably happens in every church is that a few members begin to think that they are the master of God's house. They think that because they have some power, have some cash, have some influence, that they should be in charge, they should form committees, and start being a critic of the pastor and pastors. Some of you are, are new Christians, and you're like, that never happens in a church. Some of you that have been in church for quite a, quite a while, you're like, I've seen that happen in this church, this church, this church, and this church. Why? Because the church, the master of the church, the master of God's house isn't me and it isn't you, it's God. And we submit to him as our master, which means I have to serve his agenda before I ever serve your agenda. Now, I love you. I absolutely love you. I would give you, give you anything to, to help you to um, sacrifice my, my family, our time, our energy, our, our money. I've sacrificed all sorts of things because I love you. But at the end of the day, I have to serve the agenda of God. And Paul's like, hey, guys, I love you, but it's not about you. It's about Jesus. He's the master, and I have to follow his orders, and I have to do what he wants me to do because he is the master of the house. Now, let me, let me point this out as well. I'll, I'll point this out. How does Paul know? What does he say? How does Paul know whether or not he's successful in Jesus' eyes? I'll give you a hint. It's in verse 2. How does he know if he's actually successful? What's the litmus test for whether or not he's being successful? Is it the size of his church? Is it how big the budget is? Is it how big the buildings are? I mean, those things are typically the, the measure for most pastors. Paul says that the measure of success for a pastor is that stewards, that they are found faithful. That they're found faithful. Here's, here's what that means. The true test of every pastor is not the measure of their following, but the measure of their faithfulness. It is the measure of their faith. This is so hard for me. This is so hard for me. I want to I wanna, uh, you know, talk to God sometimes and be like, hey, God, we got it going on at the bridge, you know? And be like, things, things, things are happening. Things are, look at the following. Look at the people. Look at how awesome things are. Jesus is like, it's not about the following. It's about whether or not you're going to be faithful in what I have given you. It's, it's not about the measure of your following. It's about the measure of your faithfulness, which means we have to be concerned primarily about faithfulness. See, these Corinthians... They didn't want Paul to be faithful. Being faithful means that you're true to the word. It means you're being true to the gospel. It's being true to the commission that Jesus has given you. And they were, you know, thought that was fine and dandy, but they wanted Paul to do things other than that. 
They wanted Paul to be faithful to other things rather than that. And Paul says, I have to be faithful to the, the gospel, to the calling that Jesus has given me. And it's not enough to just be fruitful. I have to be faithful in what God has given, given me. Now, this, the clearest example that I have of this is actually my father. My dad, when I was a kid, I wasn't a pastor's kid when I was growing up, but when I was in middle school, he felt the call to, to, to pastor a church, to plant a new church um, in, um, in Myrtle Beach when I, was, when I was in middle school. And um, <laughs> I didn't like the church. I kind of hated the church. I'm like, I'm never going to do that. You see who won that war. Um, and I remember, though, like, uh, it's, I guess it's, it's been almost 20, 20 years now, and uh, I remember setting up chairs for the very first time we ever had our first uh, worship gathering, you know, as a new church. I remember being Forest Hills, uh, sorry, uh, Forestville Elementary School, setting up chairs, and then I remember we were there for a few months, and then we had to move to another facility and a different facility, and the church never exploded. The church never took off. The church was never big. Um, he, we, we merged with the church a few years in, and there was uh, some issues with that it came about after a few months that we had merged, and then one of the, the members of the other church filed a lawsuit against my family, against the church, and the church has never had over really 100 people. But my dad, he's there for essentially 20 years now. He's been faithful to the same congregation. He, he, just, he just shows up. He just shows up and he loves people regardless of the size of the following. That's faithfulness. He's faithful. He's, he's got to be true to what God has called him to do regardless of what maybe his critics may think or the people that want to file lawsuits against him. He has to be faithful to it. And Paul says that the measure of my success is whether or not I'm going to be faithful with what God has given me because the true measure is faithfulness, not the size of your following. Then he says this in verse 6. He goes on and he says this. I have applied all these things to myself and Apollos, which was kind of his compadre, other uh, ministry partner, for your benefit, brothers, that you may learn by us not to go beyond what is written, that none of you may be puffed up in favor of one against another. For who sees anything different in you? He starts to use a little sarcasm. Uh, what do you have that you did not receive? If then you did receive it, why do you boast as if you did not receive it? Already you have all that you want. He's using a little irony here. Already you have become rich. Without us, you have become kings. And would that you did reign so that we might share the rule with you. Paul says that the root of this Corinthian problem was that they moved beyond what is written. They move beyond what is written. What exactly does, does that mean? It means that they move beyond the message of the testimony that he had been given, that he had given them, that they had moved beyond the message of the gospel. See, unfortunately, what happens is these new Christians thought that the gospel was like the starting line in the race, but once they started the race, it was up to something else to get them to the finish line. It was almost like the gospel was just a teaser in order to get you into the race, and then it's up to you in order to make it to the finish line. And Paul says that any time we move past the gospel in search of something else for our spirituality, the end result will be pride. So they like Jesus. They're down with Jesus. Okay, Jesus, he changes my life. He makes me a Christian. He, he lets me get into the church. But now um, I want to be super spiritual. You know, the gospel was good. It was okay. But I need something else now. I need something super spiritual in order to get to the place where I wanted to get, 
which would be a place of power and prominence and leadership and position and influence in, in the church. They thought the gospel was just kind of the starting line, but then they needed something else to get to the finish line. Here's what I think Paul's trying to teach us about the gospel. Fruit in the Christian life only grows on the tree that's rooted in the gospel. Fruit in the Christian life only grows on the tree that's rooted in the gospel. So it would be, it would be insane for a tree to get to a point where it thinks that it no longer needs the ground, right? For a tree to be like, I'm done with the ground, you know? I've been tied to the ground all this time. I'm now growing. I'm now fruitful. Look at all the things that I've done. I no longer need the ground. That would be absolutely crazy. The only way that a tree exists and actually grows is when it's deeply rooted in the soil. And Paul says that is how the gospel works in our lives. The gospel is the ground in which we are not only planted, but we are also rooted. Now, I've said the word gospel you know, a dozen times already in the sermon. What exactly am I talking about? In, uh, in the first century, in Paul's day, um, kings would go off to battle, and they would be on the battlefield, distant from the city, distant from the people, and you didn't have phones, you didn't have the internet, there was no way to know what exactly was happening. Is my king going to actually win, or is he going to be defeated? You didn't know, so you lived in kind of a state of fear, kind of a state of anxiety. And what they would do is when the king would uh, defeat the enemy, they would send a gospel carrier back to the city who would herald the good news that the king had defeated the enemy on the battlefield, and therefore you could now live in freedom, recognize that you didn't have to worry about uh, the enemy coming to attack you. And I love what um, these early Christians did. They stole the word gospel. They stole the word gospel to use it for Christianity because it was such a good picture of what Jesus Christ has done for us. Okay, so Jesus Christ on the cross has gone to the battlefield and on the battlefield has defeated your greatest enemy of Satan, sin, hell, and the grave. He defeated it on the cross and then the good news is the message, it's the heralding, it's the announcement that Jesus has already done everything necessary to save us and that we don't do anything on our own to save us. You weren't on the cross, Jesus was on the cross all by himself. And on the cross, he took on everything unworthy about you. Um, theologians call this the great exchange. He took on your righteousness. He, uh, sorry, your unrighteousness. He took on your, your pain. He took on your shame. He took on your brokenness. He took on your lies. He took on your thievery onto him, onto the cross. He absorbed it into his body. And then he paid for that and gave you his righteousness his beauty, his cleanliness, his holiness, his, his adoration, his relationship with the Father, it all became you. There's another analogy that is used in the New Testament that describes the relationship that Jesus has with us. He describes it like a groom and a bride. I, lo I love this. So I, I do weddings quite often. And at a wedding, you have a bride and a groom that are standing uh, apart from one another. And what happens on a wedding day is that two become one. Everything that was bad, that was ugly, that was not pretty about him just became yours. His college debt, you know, all of his bad habits, everything just became yours. And everything that was bad about you now becomes his. You become one. And Paul and some other writers use that language to describe what happens when you become a Christian. Everything that was unworthy about you now becomes Christ. He took it on himself and everything that is beautiful about him now becomes yours. And Paul says to these Corinthians, 
you got to stay rooted in that truth. You can never move on from that truth. That truth is the ground in which you are rooted and planted, and that is the ground on which your life will bear fruit. So the way this, way this, happens, um, way this happens for me, um, I tend to try to find other things that produce fruit in my life. Um, say it another way. I often try to find things to make me feel valuable, to make me feel meaningful, to make me feel significant to other people. Because I want other people to like me. I want other people to think that I'm awesome. I want other people to think that I am wonderful. And so I have this need and this desire. And so, for instance, uh, as a pastor, when I show up into a meeting with other pastors, uh, we always play the game, how many people do you have? How many people do you have, you know? It's, now, we, we say it's, you know, for God's glory and all that stuff. It's not. It's not. Um, the, the weirdest thing is, you know, they always, they always ask, um, how many are you running? I'm like, is it cattle? I'm like, what, what's going what, what's going on here? There's like, so what happens is there's this like this competition that kind of kind of forms in, in the room and everybody's trying to justify like uh, their, their own significance and their meaning and, and, and their value. I'm sure God is like looking down like, what is going on? You're, you're on the same team, guys. I mean, like you're trying to do the same thing. You're working for me, but we, we make it into a competition and I now, I need to tell them like, a certain success of what I do in order to feel like I actually mean something. I have to feel like I have to tell them a certain number in order to feel significant and, and value because it hangs on that. Being rooted in the gospel means I no longer need external things in order to feel like I have value and meaning because Jesus has given me all the value and meaning I could ever need and I could ever want. He's given me a relationship with the Father what else could be greater than that? He, he's given me his own righteousness, which is justification. What else could I need? He's given me his beauty. What in the world could ever make me more beautiful? It's all in Christ. And, and Paul says to these Corinthians, you have to stay rooted in the gospel. You have to stay rooted in the gospel. And the way that you know that you're not rooted in the gospel is because you begin to boast in other things that aren't the gospel. You start to use your beauty to think that you are meaningful. You start to use your salary level. You start to use uh, that you're a business owner. You start to use your GPA in order to feel like you have meaning rather than resting in the gospel and being rooted in the gospel. And Paul says you have to stay rooted in him. Then he goes on and he says this in verse 9. He says this, For I think that God has exhibited us apostles as last of all. Like men sentenced to death, because we have become a spectacle to the world, to angels and to men. We are fools for Christ's sake, but you, starting to use a little irony, you're wise in Christ. We are weak, but you, you're strong. We are, you are held in honor, but we in disrepute. And he goes on to explain, to the present hour we hunger and thirst. He means literally. We are poorly dressed and buffeted, meaning beaten and homeless, and we labor working with our own hands. When reviled, we bless. When persecuted, we endure. When slandered, we entreat. We have become and are still like the scum of the world, the refuse of all things. 
There's an interesting phrase that I, I feel like I have to point out from, from verse 9. Paul says about himself in reference to the other church leaders, the other apostles, he says that they have become a spectacle to the world. In full disclosure, I had no clue what he was talking about. So I had to, to look it up and to, to learn exactly what he was, he was saying. In Paul's day, um, if you were a criminal especially a terrible criminal and did something significant to betray a Roman official or the emperor, you would be used as a spectacle during a gladiatorial game in the Roman Colosseums. So in fact, um, the largest Colosseum in, in history is the Flavian Amphitheater in Rome that can hold over 50,000 people, and it was constructed about the same time period when Paul was writing this letter to the Corinthians. So if you were condemned to die, you would be made a spectacle, and they would bring you into the center of the arena and throw you to the beast to be eaten and devoured. And that's the language that Paul used to describe himself to society. He's ultimately trying to get these Corinthians to recognize what it was that they signed up for when they became Christians. Now, there are a lot of Christians that don't realize what they signed up for. You know, I became a Christian and it gets me to heaven, you know, and I became a Christian and now all of my issues will go away. I became a Christian and now there will no longer be any pain in my life. I became a Christian because Jesus is going to give me a good marriage. He's going to make everything right that is wrong in my life. That's a false understanding of the nature of the Christian life. They're still operating on the premise that Jesus exists to help them get to the top. That Jesus' work in their life is to help them to have a, power, a status of power and, and rule and, and reign. As Paul is trying to show them that when you become a Christian, the goal is no longer to make it to the top, but to make it to the bottom. Now, I don't mean uh, that you can't be a successful business owner. I don't mean that there's no one in this room that could ever hold a political office. I don't mean that you can't be, uh, succeed in whatever it is, the field that you are in, but when you become a Christian, the trajectory of your life is no longer how you can get above people, but how you can get below people, how you can serve, how you can give, how you can sacrifice. Jesus, he, he does this on several occasions with, um, with, with his disciples. <laughs> his disciples, oh man, man, they were messy. Um, his disciples, like all the time, were trying to vie for uh, highest position with Jesus. <laughs> so they would literally, they'd be like arguing, arguing amongst themselves, and they'd come to Jesus, and they're like, hey, Jesus, um, we just want to ask a question. Like, what can we do to uh, be the number one disciple? Guys, are you, then later, a different scenario, they say, hey, Jesus, um, we got an important question that we want to ask you. Um, what do we need to do on earth so that whenever we get to heaven, we can sit beside you in the nice fancy chair that you're going to be sitting in? And Jesus has to continually and emphatically reframe for them the essence of what he is calling them to, which isn't a call to make it to the top, but to make it to the bottom. It's a call to sacrifice. Jesus said, I came not to be served, but to serve and to give my life as a ransom for many. And then Jesus did it in the most profound way possible, a way that they would never forget for the rest of their lives. On one day, he brings them into a room, and the disciples are there together, and they're, they're hanging out. And Jesus goes over, and he grabs a bowl, a bowl, a pot of water, and he comes, and he brings it and sits on the ground, and he takes a rag, and he says, I want to wash your feet. And one after the other, he washes their feet. That's not the role of Jesus. 
That's not the role of a king. That's the role of a servant. And what Jesus is doing is he's trying to get them to understand that his kingdom, it's an upside-down kingdom. And in his kingdom, the way that you live, the trajectory of your life isn't to make it to the top, but to make it to the bottom. It's to make it to the bottom. Here's, here's, what, I think, um, here's what I think Paul is trying to get us to understand. Christianity is not a platform for power and prosperity, but for poverty and persecution. That is what we are signing up for. We're signing up for pain. We're signing up for persecution. We're signing up for, for poverty. But how, how do we get the ability, how do we get the ability to be able to serve? How do we get the ability to be able to enjoy a life of poverty if that's what God calls us to? How do we get to when someone persecutes us to actually bless in turn? It's through the gospel. It's through being rooted in the gospel. When you see the king of the universe didn't see equality with God, something to be grasped or to held on to, but gave his life, sacrificed his life, and took on the form of a servant, and took on human flesh, and went to the cross and became obedient to death, obedient even to the point of death. It's in, it's in Jesus. It's what Jesus did, and then he calls us to follow him. Through, through, throughout the Gospels, Jesus says, he crowds of people that love his, love his sermons, you know, and then he, he tells them, you think he's going to create a megachurch, and he tells them, if you want to follow me, you have to take up your cross and die. And people walk away because they, they don't like that message. He's over and over again saying, if you want to follow me, if you want to live the Jesus way of life, you have to be prepared to die. You have to be prepared. To, that, is, that is why... That's why some of you are going to be international uh, church planners and missionaries. Some of you in the room right now probably don't even have that on your radar, but God's going to use you to be an international missionary. I could never Im imagine my life of, of moving away from America and moving to an underprivileged society uh, for the sake of the gospel. People do it all the time because they find in Christ their everything that they need for their life and then therefore can give it away in order to serve and to, to bless others. We, we have a hard time just saying hey to, hey to people that aren't like us. Well, we, we, have, we have a hard time just actually shaking the hand of somebody that doesn't make as much money uh, as us, who, who's dressed a little bit you know, ugly, maybe hadn't taken a bath in a couple of days, who's asking for money. We, we, have, we avoid you know, those people. We avoid situations that are hard, that are painful, that are struggles. And Jesus says, what are you doing? I thought you signed up to die. I thought you signed up to give your life to other people. That's the essence of what it means to be a Christian. And Paul has to continually and emphatically reframe for them what it means to be a Christian, what it was they signed up for. You're like, Ethan, this isn't a church growth sermon. I know. Then he says this. This is the end of our passage, verse 14. He says this. I do not write these things to make you ashamed, Anybody feel ashamed in the room? They're like a terrible Christian. I don't write these things to make you feel ashamed, but to admonish you as my beloved children. He's writing these words because he wants to encourage them. He wants to help them. He wants to serve them. He wants to give them the, the, the idea, the life that Jesus has called them to live. In verse 15, he says, 
For though you have countless guides in Christ, you don't have many fathers. For I became your father in Christ Jesus through the gospel. I urge you then, be imitators of me. That is why I sent you Timothy, my beloved and faithful child in the Lord, to remind you of my ways in Christ as I teach them everywhere in every church. And then he says about these Corinthians, some are arrogant as though I were not coming to you, but I will come to you soon if the Lord wills. And I will find out not the talk of these arrogant people, but their power. For the kingdom of God does not consist in talk, but in power. What do you wish? He says an ultimatum. Shall I come to you with a rod or with a love and a spirit of gentleness? He essentially here, he wraps up his idea with one final analogy that he wants to leave them with in this passage. He says that he is to them a spiritual father, their spiritual dad, and they are like to him spiritual children. See, what's true about these Corinthians is that they have what he says, countless guides in Christ. This word here for guide, it's, it's the Greek word uh, pedagogos, in which we get our term pedagogue. Um, in, in the passage, in the idea here, it's, it's kind of like a guardian. So you had servants, and then you also had guardians in the household. And guardians were responsible for helping educate the children, help take them to school, help do their homework. And Paul says, you've got countless guardians in your life. You've got countless people that are kind of peers, that are kind of helping you. He says, but what you don't have is a spiritual father. You don't have someone that loves you like a dad. Someone that loves you enough to be both tough and tender. What we need in our lives are spiritual leaders, spiritual fathers, spiritual mothers to help us and lead us and to, to, to guide us. I'll, I'll say it this way. Every Christian needs a spiritual leader to follow and imitate. Every Christian. Oh, Ethan, I've been in church for a long time, brother. Every Christian needs a spiritual leader to imitate and follow. Oh, but Ethan, I've been to seminary, man. I've got theology down. Every Christian needs a spiritual leader to follow and imitate. Every single one of us. And Paul says, you got a lot of guides, but you don't have many fathers. I'll just ask you this question. Do you have anybody in your life that is a spiritual leader for you? Do you have anybody in your life that can call you out on things when it comes to your life? So a spiritual leader isn't just a friend, somebody that you high-five every Sunday at church. A spiritual leader is somebody that you talk to before you purchase a vehicle because you want to get their input on the decision-making process. A spiritual leader is someone that you talk to before you buy a home because you want their input and you want to submit to what they think about your current position or your, your, your life. It, it means showing up to community group and submitting yourself to the whole of what people think and the people uh, that pouring into you that love you as spiritual leaders in your life. Do you have anybody in your life that is a spiritual leader that you would submit to? Paul says you've got to have a spiritual leader. That's, he's reframing for them their whole idea of, of church. They come to church and they think, oh, this is just a service. This is just something that's cool. This is going to help me. This is going to make me feel good about myself. I'm going to leave and I'm going to do everything I want to do. And I'll come every couple of weeks a month, you know, and get a cool message. He says the church is a family of spiritual fathers and spiritual children's that, children that pour into one another and serve one another and submit to one another. It's a, it's a family of people. And it's only when you operate as God has designed this to operate where you really get to experience what it means to be a healthy Christian. 
Maybe some of the mess in our lives is indicative of not having a spiritual leader that we want to submit our lives to. Maybe that we are all victims sometimes of the mess in our lives, but perhaps some of the mess in our lives is an inability to want to follow someone else and to submit to their leadership. So that means find somebody, show up to a community group, Find somebody that's a Christian that's maybe a little further along than you and say, I want to learn from you. I want to help. I want you to lead me. I want you to pour into me. I want, to, I want you to, to guide me. I want you to, to help. That, that means uh, maybe if you can't find that right away, that means showing up to church on a regular basis and, and, and being submit yourself to God's word and what God's word says over you. It's recognizing that that is good for your life. It's good for you to submit. It's good for you to follow. It's good for you to obey. It's good for you to sacrifice. It's good for you to serve. It's good for you to be gener- generous because that is how God has wired you. It's how he, that's how he's wired you. And how do we, how do we get the ability to, to do all this? How do we get the ability to live this, this kind of, of life? To serve and give of our money give of our time, give of our energy to, to other people. The way that you get to that point in your life is that you recognize that you already have everything you need for life and for happiness in Christ. He is everything that you need. Some of you are going through a really tough time right now. Some of you are struggling. Some of you are in the middle of pain. Some of you are in the middle of turmoil. Some of you got that got drama. I talked to some uh, a person this morning uh, who just in the past month has a has a failed marriage where her her spouse is, is left left her in the middle of pain. How do you make it through the pain in the middle of trials, in the middle of trouble? It's recognizing that everything isn't perfect. But if I'm rooted in Jesus, then I'll have the necessary fruit that He wants me to have in my life. Because he provides me with everything that's necessary for life and happiness in him. You already possess everything that you need to be happy. You don't have to lead. You don't have to be in charge. You don't have to be successful. You don't have to be a CEO. You don't have to climb the mountain. You don't have to do anything. You don't have to climb the corporate ladder. You already have everything necessary for life and happiness in Jesus Christ. And regardless of what you do today, regardless of how great you do, regardless of how poorly you do, there's nothing that you can do today to make God love you more or God love you less than he does right now. Because it has been done and finished in Jesus. Amen? Amen. Let's pray. God, thank you for your good, good word that we submit to. We submit to and we follow your leadership in our lives because you are the master of this house You're the master of this house, and we are just merely servants. So God, I pray that you would help us, help us to do what you've called us to do. Help us to, if necessary, forfeit the American dream to follow the Christian dream, to follow your design for our lives. So God, we ask for this in Jesus' good name. Amen.